Hey there, my name is Dan and I'm one of the pastors here at HTBB and I'm so glad that we get to look at the Bible together today. One of my side hobbies is that I like to read about psychology and there's this whole area of psychology that absolutely fascinates me that's focused on trying to understand how conversations work. Now, it's fascinating to think about because it's so important. Relationships are built on conversation. Leadership happens through conversation. And some would go so far as to say that conflict only exists in the absence of the right conversation. So it's useful to have tools to think about how we approach each other and speak to one another. And I don't know about you, but I've suddenly become really aware of how we relate to people. And this is because as the restrictions started to lift, we suddenly started to see people that we hadn't seen in person for months, but had seen every day online. And it was a little bit odd. I wonder if you've had this experience in my first day coming back to the office after the MCO. As I pulled up in the car park, Abel and Jacintha, who I work with, were also getting out of their car. And as we approached each other, I suddenly realized I didn't know how to greet them because I hadn't seen them in four months. So I should have been excited to see them and to catch up. But at the same time, we had nothing to catch up on because I'd seen and spoken to them every day, more than I ever have in my life before because we had a meeting every day on Zoom for the entire lockdown. Then again, I hadn't seen them in person. So normally you'd be physically effusive. You'd give them a hug, but no, because you must never touch anyone ever again unless followed immediately by a bath in Dettol. And so I stood there, slightly awkward, not knowing how to approach them. And they were the same. They were unsure too. And eventually, Abel kind of gave me an awkward little wave, even though they were standing really close. So neither of us knew what to do. We were in greeting limbo. And I wonder if you've had that experience. Have you been in that situation? We have no script for it. We, we know how to greet a casual acquaintance. Or we know how to greet a close friend. We know how to greet people we've not seen in a while and how to greet those we see every day. But we were never given a script for how to greet someone you've seen digitally every day but not seen physically in months. It's new territory. And we've all had to work that out because how you greet someone and receive someone tends to set the direction of the rest of the conversation and then ultimately the relationship going forwards. And I think you can use this experience as a window into our relationship with Jesus. It's a window into why sometimes when we think of God, our first thoughts are not always joyful, but sometimes discouraged or deterred. It's a bit like Zoom fatigue. You've probably heard of Zoom fatigue. You've probably got it at the moment. It's a real thing. The working idea behind it is that it's tiring because chatting to people online because you have the plausible deniability of the other's absence. One part of our brain is saying you're at work in a big meeting with your colleagues. This is fun. And the other part of your brain is saying, no, you're at home alone in a store cupboard in your underwear. Your mind is constantly in this tension of being with and not with people and trying to work out what to feel. Lots of the emotional cues that we rely on to know how people are feeling towards us are missing or harder to read through a screen. And so with a natural negativity bias, any ambiguity tends to leave us feeling in limbo. Now, if that's true of our relationship with people, how much more our relationship with God? If you are constantly trying to work out what is God's position towards me, what is his heart towards me, 
then that is exhausting. And not only that, it kind of takes our legs out from under us. It kills our momentum because it's quite hard to share God's love if we're not entirely sure we've received God's love for ourselves. It's quite hard to tell others that God likes them if you're not sure that he likes you. And so as we finish today this little series on vision and giving, I want to circle back to the passage we looked at two weeks ago with Miles and focus in on one verse that reveals God's heart towards us, that as we start to believe for ourselves, we'll fuel the fire of vision and action for his kingdom in and through our lives. So our reading today is found in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 35. And the background of this reading is that as Jesus is traveling on his way, he he first encounters two blind men and they cry out for mercy and we read that he touches them and their sight is restored. Then he encounters a man who's demonized and he doesn't cry out for help because he's unable to speak. He's, He's a mute and so Jesus sends the demon out of him and the man begins to talk. So he's encountered individuals who are harassed and helpless. And then this is what we read. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and illness. And then what we read is he sends them out to do all the things that he did. So the question I want us to think about today is, what is God's heart towards me? When God looks at me, what does he feel? Now that question often comes at us in two different ways. The first is often voiced as an objection, kind of like if if God loves us, then why all this talk of judgment in the Bible? Why not just love us and leave us be? And the second way that this comes and often isn't voiced, is mostly kept internal, is this. If God is in any way a judge, then how could he love someone like me? And we'll see how God's heart towards us removes both of those barriers. Because the answer to that question, what is God's heart towards me, can be found in this passage. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the response Jesus had as he looked at the crowd, the response he had as he looked at those individuals needing healing, is the same response he has when he looks at you. When he looks at you, what rises up in his heart is compassion. This is what we read in verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. When God looks at you, his heart is filled with compassion for you. Now, we can struggle to believe that and receive that because because compassion is, is an interesting thing. It's made of two things. Firstly, vision. Vision is you see something that is not right. 
pain, suffering, injustice, and you make an objective moral decision about it. You make a judgment. You say, that is not okay. That is wrong. But if it's just that, at best it's empathy, and at worst it's moralizing. For it to become compassion, you have to add to your vision action. Compassion gets involved. Compassion is where your vision moves you to action. You are compelled from your very being. The word that's used here in the Greek is splagnizomai. I had to practice that. Meaning to be moved from your inward parts, from your bowels, from the seat of your affections. In the English, the word uh, comes from the Latin, meaning with suffering, that you are moved to a place where you suffer with them. You attach your peace to their peace. Unless they have peace, you will not have peace. That is what happens in God's heart as he looks at you. And as he looks at you, compassion rises up. But sometimes that's hard to believe and even harder to receive. It's hard to believe because there's a challenge with each of those parts, and then there's another challenge when you put them together. Firstly, there's the challenge of vision, because vision involves a judgment. We read, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus looks at them, he makes a moral judgment about them. And that can sometimes feel uncomfortable. That's why the question is, you know, if God loves us, why can't he just leave us be? Why do we even need to talk about judgment? And the reason is that true love is not opposed to judgment. Before uh, my wife, Kate, uh, would uh, allow me to go out with her, I had to ask her out three times, by the way, uh, she said that I had to watch and preferably enjoy her favorite TV version of her favorite book, the BBC adaptation of her favorite story, Pride and Prejudice. And I learned quite a lot, and it was quite informative and nearly entertaining. But there is this moment in the story where Mr. Darcy, who is very well-to-do, falls in love with this woman, Elizabeth, who's of a different social rank, and that's a problem for him. And he calls in to see her, and you can see how bothered he is. He's a bit awkward, and he's holding his tongue. But then as he's about to leave, he stops, turns around, and comes back towards her, looks her in the eyes, and says, in vain, I have struggled. It will not do. My feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. Which is brilliant. That's a, that's a great opener, but then he ruins it. He, he then goes on to say that this is going to go against his wishes of his family and his friends, his own better judgment that he loves her, uh, even despite his reason, his position, and his own character. And then he goes on to insult her family. So unsurprisingly, she rejects his love. And as a man, he can't quite get his head around this. So he asks her why? To which she replies, you told me that you loved me, even though it goes against your will, your reason, your character. And in other words, she's saying, you told me that you loved me against all better judgment. And that doesn't work. See, true love doesn't exist in the absence of judgment. True love exists in the presence of it. In fact, we need judgment in order to know that we are loved. 
All of us are desperate to know intimacy in our lives. And one solution is to go around projecting an image of ourselves, hoping that people will like us and love us. But the problem with that is that when people do fall in love with us, it's with the image and not the reality. That's why you can be very rich and very famous and very powerful and still be terribly lonely. It's why you can win all the glittering prizes that this world affords and still be empty because people have only fallen in love with the image and they never get to know the real you. Do you know what? No matter how popular you are, if no one knows the real you, if no one knows your shortcomings, your failings, your weaknesses, if no one knows you like that, then you are terribly alone. However, if there are a few people who know the real you, they know all the things that we want to hide and yet they still like you and love you, then those are the most meaningful relationships you have. Do you know a love like that? Because that is the love that Jesus has for you. Jesus does not want to have a surface relationship with you. He wants you to know that he knows you. He knows all of you. And in the full knowledge of that judgment, he loves you and likes you. Jesus doesn't just love the Instagram you. He loves the real you. And amazingly, it's not in spite of his judgment. It's because of it. We read that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without shepherd. He sees us in our harassed and helpless state, and in that place, he wants to help. So, so often when we do something wrong uh, and we're feeling guilty, we think, oh, I, I need to wait to, to come to him for forgiveness. We, we think it'd be somehow improper or presumptuous to, to come to him too, too quickly. It would be a bother to him. But this is because we don't take seriously what the Bible says when it says that we are Christ's body, that he is our head and we are his body. Like, you know, how does your head feel about your hand? Your head cares for your hand. If, if your hand gets hurt, you care for it. You, you would nurse it, you would bandage it, you would protect it, you would give it time to heal. For that body part isn't just a close friend, it's part of us. So it is with Jesus and his followers. We are part of him. When we hurt, he hurts. He has joined his peace with our peace. And when we sin, he wants to forgive. He's not annoyed. In fact, it brings him joy. Think of it a bit like this, continuing the idea of medical care. Um, I, I love being part of St. Paul's Theological College uh, based here because there's so many inspiring people there that make me want to follow Jesus closer. And one of those is a, is a student called Dr. Dolly. Dr. Dolly is a retired medical doctor. And one of the things that she does, and I, I don't have her permission to tell this story, by the way, because there's no way she would let me because she's so humble. But one of the things that she does is she travels overseas and uses her expertise to provide medical care in places where there is no care or it's, or it's unavailable. Now, she travels there at her own cost. She brings her supplies with her. She, she meets with people, diagnoses their problems and prepares a cure. Now, imagine if that point they refuse. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. Imagine how disappointed Dr. Dolly would be. 
And then imagine, finally, a brave young individual steps forward to receive the care and everyone else follows and receives this free gift. What does Dr. Dolly and the others in her team feel at that moment? Joy. The joy increases when the sick come to help and get help and healing because that is the whole reason they came. How much more if the sick are not strangers but part of your own family? So it is with Jesus. He does not get flustered or frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness. That is the whole point. It's what he came to do. As it said, he came to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. And he doesn't just do it because it's his job. He does it because it brings him joy. We read that it's for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. Having true compassion involves making a judgment. And then having made that judgment, Jesus sees us as we truly are and loves us as we truly are. It is a love, not in the absence of judgment, but in the presence of judgment. So we see how the challenge of vision and the challenge of judgment is resolved by his love. What about the challenge of action? As we said before, compassion is not just vision. It's not just about looking at something and making a judgment about it and just letting it carry on. It's a judgment that drives you to action. And what we see Jesus do here is when he sees these people like sheep without a shepherd, he is driven to action and his action is to give. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every disease and sickness. And then he sends them out. He gives them authority and then he gives them away. How amazing is that? When he sees us in in our mess, his reaction is not to condemn us, but to have compassion for us, demonstrated by giving away his best leaders. He sends out his 12. It's not like he even keeps back his favorite. It's not like, hey, John, you stay here. You you never cause me any trouble. He gives them all away. He gives away his best. Why? Because that's what his father did. For when God saw and loved the world, he gave his only son. And now his only son sees the crowd. He gives his only followers. In other words, Jesus gives away his best. What that means is any time you are sent out to serve in Jesus' name, you can know that he's saying, you are my best. Sharing is declaring. And when he shares you with the world through service, he's declaring his favor for you. As you serve at church, as you give of your time, your treasure and talent, as you faithfully live out the gospel in your workplace, in your family, you can know that God is sharing you and so declaring his love for you. And what do we go out to share? The message of good news. But again, this is where we run up into a problem. This is the challenge of action, which is the challenge of mercy. That is what Jesus gives. He offers us mercy, but you have to be humble in order to receive it. Think about it. Like This is, in his judgment, how he describes them and how he describes us. When he saw the crowd, He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I often find artwork 
as a helpful window into getting into the feeling of these kind of things and understanding them better. And there, there are two pieces of uh, uh, artwork that have helped me understand Jesus's assessment of our situation. The first is a painting entitled The Torment of St. Anthony by Michelangelo. And the second is a piece of art simply called Life by Windy Gamer 365. And together, I think they really capture Jesus's assessment of where we're at. Like the first painting, it, we're harassed. There are things in life that crowd in on us. An alternate title for this could have been St. Anthony opens his WhatsApp on a Thursday after lunch. There are, there are things that they, they just want our attention. They harass us, spiritual attack, cultural pressures, internal desires, and it can feel like a whack-a-mole trying to keep them all at bay. We're harassed, but also he says we're helpless. And as this picture expresses, it's not just life squashing down on us, but it's our own actions as well. Because our greatest problem is our own sin. That as scripture says, we are dead in our sin. There is nothing we can do in of ourselves to lift it off of us. There's, there's nothing we can do to make up for what we have done that is wrong. Because even when we do good things, that's not a bonus. That's just what we were supposed to be doing in the first place. We are totally helpless in our sin. There, now, if that wasn't denting enough for my pride, Jesus then summarizes this by saying we are like sheep without a shepherd. And that's not a compliment. Do you know what happens to sheep without a shepherd? Well, ultimately they end up dead. But before that, they look very silly. Five years ago, a sheep named Chris broke the world record for the largest fleece ever grown, having been lost in the Australian wilderness for five years without a shepherd. Now, he'd been spotted in the wilderness, but eventually he was captured when he collapsed by the side of the road, unable to move because of the sheer weight of wool in his fleece. Now, four-time Australian sheep shearing champion Ian Elkins volunteered to shear Chris and said that in his fleece, he found vegetable matter, dust and dirt and a family of small animals. But after an hour of shearing, at the end of it, Chris the sheep was freed from over 40 kilograms of wool, enough to make about 30 jumpers. In the same way, as we go through life like a sheep without a shepherd, we get burdened up with dust and dirt and the problems uh, and things that uh, he does not want us to carry. And like Ian Elkins, the champion sheep shearer of Australia, God comes to us and offers to remove from us all that burdens us. But we have to be willing to admit that we need the help. See, the trouble is you, you cannot receive forgiveness unless you're willing that you, to admit that you need forgiveness. If you don't think you've done anything wrong, then you don't need forgiveness. But the moment we stop, take stock, and are willing to admit that I'm harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd, he's there waiting. And it's the great irony of this verse that they are like sheep without a shepherd, not are sheep without a shepherd because they are standing in the very presence of the great shepherd. And we are too. He is here today by his spirit. He is waiting to shepherd our souls into a place of peace. He is here today with mercy for you. And if we're willing to accept it, then he's ready to give it in abundance. And that leads us to the final challenge of compassion. 
which is that it's made up of two seemingly opposite things. Vision that brings judgment and action that is mercy. And the reason that this is a problem is that whenever you try and take hold of the two, they seem to be in conflict because when you exercise mercy, you do so at the expense of justice. See, justice is, I did something wrong, it is judged as wrong, I get punished. Mercy is, I did something wrong, it's judged as wrong, and I get forgiven. When you exercise one, it is always done at the expense of the other. And so the problem is because like, if you've done wrong, then you love mercy and you kind of hate justice. But if you've been wronged and mercy is given to those who wronged you, and actually you hate mercy. In fact, mercy will make you angry and you cry out for justice. And that is a problem for every religion and every ideology in the world. In every religion, God exercises his mercy at the expense of his judgment. In every religion, except one. And that's the Christian faith. And it happens at the cross. See, as God looked at us and saw us like sheep without a shepherd, he decided to do something. His vision led him to action and he gave himself. He became one of us in the incarnation. God became one with us in Jesus Christ. He became a human person with a human body, with human bodily functions. He was tempted in every way. He was challenged in every way. And yet he remained without sin and was united with us. And then at the cross, he's united with us in our sin. And our sin becomes his sin. And he pays the penalty for that sin in our place. And because he is one with us, he fulfills the righteous requirements of the law by condemning sin, naming it for what it is, and then taking the punishment for it in our place. And so God in Jesus, it doesn't exercise his mercy at the expense of his justice. He exercises his mercy through his justice. Compassion always leads to the cross because it is the only place in the universe where these two seemingly opposite things, judgment and mercy, are able to meet and kiss. And at the cross, one is not given at the expense of the other. And that means that we can know that we are known, that he sees you, he sees everything about you, and he loves us and he likes us. And it means that we can know that justice will be done. Either we will be judged for what we have done that is wrong, or we will receive what he has done for us on the cross, and he is judged for what we have done. Either way, justice is upheld and mercy is offered to everyone, everywhere, and we can know it and receive it. We no longer have to live like sheep without a shepherd because he is here and he has made a way that means we can approach him confidently, not trusting in our own works or our own projection, but in the finished work that he has done for us on the cross. And you know what? Once you know that for yourself, once you know that you can come to him, no barrier, no awkwardness, that allows you to go, as we have been talking about the last two weeks, and get his vision to see our city as he sees it and give of ourselves in service to it as he has given himself to us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you see us. 
and that you know us and you like us and you love us. And that in that place, you offer mercy in abundance to us. You offer us everything we need and more. And so, Lord, today we come to you. We admit that we are like sheep without a shepherd. And we ask that you would lead us and that you would feed us. Amen.